So by now, all of you surely know that my family and I recently returned to the United States from Australia. And when I was in Australia, one of the things I regularly said to my wife was that I could not wait to be back so that I could watch baseball again. You know, Australia has a pretty proud sporting tradition. Uh, if you ever want to see uh, a game with short shorts, no pads, and violence that would scare any NFL player, watch Australian Rules football. But instead of baseball, what they have is cricket. And the great Robin Williams once described cricket basically as baseball on antidepressant medication. <laughs> and, you know, many of my friends were Brits or Australians and they loved the game. I just, I just couldn't follow it. So I couldn't wait to get back to the U.S. And now that I'm back, finally, I have watched my first World Series in like five years. And my word, was it rewarding to watch the deeply virtuous Atlanta Braves crush the cheating Houston Astros. <laughs> and it was especially fun for me, not only because I spent so many years of my life in Atlanta, but uh, also because when I was growing up, I used to play baseball. Um, I was not an amazing baseball player, but I did love it. And one of the positions that I was best at was pitcher. I, I was way too slow to be an outfielder. I was way too big and lumbering to be a shortstop. But I was a decent pitcher. And for those of you who know something about baseball, you know that there's basically two kinds of pitchers. There's starters and there's relievers. And the starter's the guy who walks out to the mound in the first inning, and it's his job to throw as many quality pitches as he can and keep the enemy's, uh, enemy's score as low as possible. The reliever is the guy who gets sent in to finish the job at the end. And before the game begins, you generally know who's who. You know who's going to be on the mound first, you know who's going to be on the mound second. And that's one of the reasons why psychologically it can be really hard to pitch as a reliever, because you, your job is to sit there and wait and watch. And it's super tough to be a reliever when you're sitting in the, dug, in the dugout watching the other team put up run after run after run after run, and you're sitting there and you are watching your team whiff at curveballs and take a called third strike and drop a routine pop-up, and you just know they're making your life not just harder, impossible. Because when you go in to pitch and it's the bottom of the eighth inning and your starter's arm is just gone and he can't throw any more pitches, what reasonable hope do you have? I mean, best case scenario, you lose by six instead of by 10. And I mean, you're, maybe you end up looking okay personally, but you're still, you still have to ride the losing bus back home. It's extra frustrating because you feel like your teammates have left you in basically a hopeless situation. And whether we play baseball or not, whether we've played baseball or not, whether we watch baseball or not, every one of us can empathize with the emotional experience of being sent out to the mound when you're down by 10 and you know that it's hopeless. If you're working for a failing company that you know, you know the guys in the C-suite are scrapping that company and selling it off for parts, how motivated are you when your manager asks you to pull an all-nighter? If you're a student, you're working on a group project at the university and it's 30% of your grade, and you're pouring your heart and soul into it, but the other three members of the team are out at the bar. If you've got brothers and sisters, and your sibling takes something from your mom's purse and she swats you for it. 
These situations are emotionally excruciating in the end because they feel so profoundly, deeply unfair. Why do we have to live with the pain that someone else is causing? And we can't resolve it no matter what. So can anyone else feel their blood pressure rising when they put themselves in a situation like that? Yeah? Okay, sit with that emotional experience because that's the emotional tenor that you need to have in mind when you hear a passage read like Ezekiel 18. What's up with these sour grapes? The parents have eaten sour grapes and it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. Remember Ezekiel's audience. It's the exiles. It's Jerusalem. And Ezekiel has been promising them consistently now that things for all of them are about to get a whole bunch worse. Picture back to chapters 4 and 5 where God tells Ezekiel basically to make a brick that represents Jerusalem and then set an iron plate between him and that brick and Ezekiel will play God and the brick will be the city. So that no matter how the city cries out for salvation, it's just going to bounce off the like, iron wall between God and the city. There are prophecies of inevitable judgment coming to Jerusalem from all sides. I mean, if we were going to look sideways at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying the same thing. He's saying judgment is inevitable. You can see the enemy at the gates. It's coming. You're hopeless. So how do things get so bad? And if you are Ezekiel's audience, how do you go about making sense of that? This, I mean, this is the God who's been fighting Israel's wars for centuries, liberating them from their enemies, giving them victory all the time. But now suddenly, nope, it's all about to get swept away in a huge flood of inevitable judgment. What do, what do you do? How do you make sense of your situation? If you're sitting there in the gorge and you see the flash flood coming towards you, how do you make sense of it? How did things get so bad? And this is where this little proverb comes in. The fathers have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. I might say, if I were in Israel's situation, that some of this is possibly God's fault, and I might appeal to Scripture to explain myself. Think back to the first commandment, Exodus 20. I'm just going to read Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So if I were one of the exiles and I was trying to make sense of my situation and I was going to look at the Bible to do it, I might conclude, huh, my parents and their parents and their parents have sinned. And so it's up to me to deal with the negative consequences. I'm just going to have to sit here and take the wrath that comes because of my parents' sin. It makes sense, right? I mean, what, what does it mean that God visits the sins and the punishment for them on the second, the third, the fourth generation. Why then would God be so angry when the exiles start complaining about sour grapes? Don't the exiles have a point? I mean, it feels like basically divine wrath is a giant cosmic 
and really negative version of the lottery where you can just sit there and you can watch the jackpot go up and up and up and up and up and up, but this time, instead of like windfall multi-millions of dollars, what comes, what comes running down is just divine judgment that wipes a city and a people off the face of the earth. God's answer to this proverb, this interpretation of the exile situation is very simple. No, absolutely not. This is not what God is like. At the end of the day, both Moses, writing the first commandment, and Ezekiel, writing Ezekiel chapter 18, are correct. God does govern the world in such a way that one person's sin can radiate out and hurt other people. But he never destroys one person for somebody else's sin. So, to make this point, God gives Ezekiel a really simple illustration. Let's run through a couple generations of family history. We start, there's a righteous father This guy follows God's laws. He faithfully keeps his decrees. And God says, that man is righteous. He will surely live. No reference to this person's father or his father and mother. But if there's one thing that Scripture teaches us, it's that sometimes wise and godly parents produce children who don't live up to their parents' standards of life. So this man in Ezekiel 18 has a violent son. And after running through the list of ways in which this guy has offended God, God concludes, will such a man live? He will not because he has done all these detestable things. He is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Okay? But before that judgment comes, this violent man also produces a son. And in this case... His son, the grandson of the first man, is as righteous as his grandfather, and so he will live. It doesn't matter that the violent man's son uh, was the son of a violent man. He doesn't share in his father's guilt. And it doesn't matter that a righteous grandson had a wicked father. Or that <laughs> the, the principle is really pretty straightforward. God's wrath and divine justice don't follow parents to their children. And that's why the Israelites have it exactly backwards. They're in exile right now. Jerusalem is about to be overthrown, not just because of what their parents have done, but because of what Israel is doing right now. They're dying because they're unrepentantly sinning. Think back, for example, to chapter 8, where Ezekiel is in the temple and he has a vision of disgusting idolatry going on in the temple, right in the very presence of God. That's why God's glory has abandoned Jerusalem and comes to Ezekiel by the river in Babylon, of all places. So judgment is coming, and everyone will bear the weight of their own sin. But here's the mind-bending thing about this. Despite the fact that all of Ezekiel's audience is in exile or in Jerusalem, and despite the fact that Jerusalem is about to be decisively overthrown, despite the fact that many of the people of the land are about to be hauled off into exile where they're going to languish for generations, this is what God has to say. Even now, if you repent, you'll live. You'll live. It's that simple. Repent. Live. A few weeks ago, Nick taught really a powerful message. I encourage you to go back and listen to it, all of you, even if you heard it the first time. But Nick taught about how God takes no delight and the death of wicked people, and so as a result, neither should we. 
A passage like Ezekiel 18 shows us exactly how far God is willing to go in order to avoid taking delight in anybody's death. And the crazy thing about repentance as God presents it is that as far as God's concerned, when he sees repentance, he forgives and forgets sin. Repentance isn't just like the start of a new way forward where Israel needs to make amends for its sin. It's not the beginning of a new line in the ledger where we now we have to start building up credits that overtake and eventually surpass the debits. As far as God's concerned, repentance is enough to ensure life and to save from death. God won't destroy anyone because they belong to a wicked family. None of us are doomed because of our proximity even to crippling and like debilitating social evil. Everyone can be saved from wrath and from judgment. So Ezekiel 18 is a long text and I've just been kind of working through it piece by piece, but really these are the big ideas and I think you can summarize them in about three verses. 18.4, the one who sins will die. And by the way, that includes a person who was once righteous but who then becomes a sinner. That's verse 24. Verse 21, the one who repents, no matter what they did before, will live. Doesn't matter if the repentant person started wicked and then went bad, or started good and then went bad and then came back. If you repent, you'll live. And then finally, in verses 30 to 32, God makes it clear that he will judge each person according to their own ways. And here's a key verse, verse 31. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Even though God will judge humanity for sins, he would rather forgive. He isn't happy in judgment. I was having a conversation recently with one of the elders at this church. Um, who reminded me of a scene from an old movie. How many of you have ever suffered through Lawrence of Arabia all four hours? I mean, great movie, but I mean, it, it's an undertaking. And at one point in the story, T.E. Lawrence is recounting uh, a scene from earlier where he executed a man. And he's explaining to his commanding officers like the emotions that he's grappling with in, in the wake of it. And his commanding officers are trying to say, well, I mean, you know, this is war. You did something necessary. Of course you don't feel good about it. And this is what T.E. Lawrence says. He said, I had to execute him with my pistol and there was something about it that I didn't like. I enjoyed it. This is the difference between God and human beings, even when human beings kill for what they think is a purpose, a human being might enjoy it. But even when God sweeps away injustice and unrighteousness, he doesn't. He takes no delight in it. And this is really the big problem of Ezekiel 18. It's not just repentance versus unrepentance. It's who we think God is when we repent. Because if you think that God has inevitably decided to judge and condemn and overthrow, then you say, what's the point? But if you understand that the character of God fundamentally is that even when he brings judgment and wrath on sin, he hates it. 
and that he would rather forgive and that he is opening a way for forgiveness all the time. Repentance in life, repentance in life, repentance in life. When we understand that, it becomes a whole lot easier to repent and live because we know who God is. But we still have to live with the tension of Exodus 20 verses Ezekiel 18. Which is it? Do people suffer because of their ancestors' sins, or does God punish sinners only for what they do personally? And this is one of those kingdom tensions that we all have to learn to be comfortable with, because the answer is clearly yes. But this is a point that's hard to understand. And I can empathize with the Israelites when they complain about sour grapes, because I sometimes hear Christians, and sometimes I'm tempted to make the same complaint myself, I sometimes hear Christians complain that God hasn't, uh, hasn't shown himself to be totally merciful because of the nasty and terrible effects of sin that he allows in the world. And th- this is a point that just stems naturally from one of the fundamental Christian doctrines, the doctrine of original sin. If you were going to look at a text like Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Sit with that for a second. If you're a human being, you've had to live with the reality of sin and death that are in the world, not because of anything you did, but because of what Adam did. And at some level, that feels profoundly unfair. But we see the truth of it all around us. I mean, other people's sin, my sin, your sin, it radiates out from us to harm our neighbors all the time. My sin harms my family, my friends, and even perfect strangers. Social sins at like the grandest level are destroying communities and individuals left and right. So think about the large scale for a second. Like the greed of investment bankers in the early 2000s crashes the stock market, kicks off the Great Recession, and tanks the economy for everybody. Trillions of dollars of wealth are gone. People can't afford to retire. People can't afford to buy food for their kids. The greed of a few produces tremendous misery for the many. We're still living with it today. But at the more immediate level, you and me, when we sin, we harm the people around us. So if, if those of us who are parents, when we get angry, if we shout at our toddlers consistently, then eventually they're going to become afraid of their parents. If we steal from our employers, if we steal from our employees, those are the folks who are going to suffer the nasty consequences for your sin and my sin. If Christians leave their churches on Sunday and then go and buy sex from women and girls and young men, then we're not only using human beings as objects, the odds are good that we're putting money into the pockets of human traffickers and only encouraging them to go right back and do what they were already doing. Our sin individually and collectively radiates out from us and harms the people around us, and that's the reason why over time God's divine wrath does build up because of his love for the victims of sin, that he won't allow sin to continue dominating and oppressing and crushing victims. It would be easy to make that the whole point 
to a sermon about divine wrath, judgment, and repentance. But the amazing thing about God, and the thing that gives me tremendous hope in a passage like Ezekiel 18, is that the same love that produces God's wrath on sin at the biggest and smallest level is the same love that he has for the perpetrators of sin at the biggest and smallest levels. And that's why God makes a way for repentance. God loves Adam and all of us who suffer because of Adam. God loves the people who suffer as the result of my sin and the people who suffer as a result of your sin. And he loves us with the same great overwhelming love. He wants all of us, like the Israelites, to repent and live. And that's the good news. That's the great news of Ezekiel 18, that there's always a way to salvation. Even when God destroys a civilization from top to bottom for their total corruption, like he did with the nations in the land that Israel was going up to possess, he always saves the people who repent and do the right thing. And the Bible is just, you could go through it from chapter to chapter and make a massive list of the ways in which you see this to be true. God saves Noah from the midst of a totally corrupt generation. God saves Lot from Sodom. God saves Rahab from Jericho. In the exile, when the Babylonians themselves are about to get wiped away, and Darius the Mede is coming with his armies. It's Daniel, who's righteous, who stands there and announces the coming judgment. But then when the judgment comes, he's still there in the next chapter. In the middle of Jerusalem, when things are at the worst, when Jeremiah is being thrown into a pit for this, because he's been proclaiming faithfully the word of God, there's a man who helps him. His name's Baruch, the son of Neriah. God saves Baruch from the overthrow of the city and sends him safely on his way to Egypt. He gets his life as a ransom for doing what's good and righteous, even in the midst of total corruption. And it's because of this pattern throughout the scriptures, it's because of the nature and character of God, whose basic desire is always to forgive, that repentance is so foundational to my Christian life and to your Christian life. In the early church, there was a great saint named uh, Isaac the Syrian, and when Isaac tried to define the Christian life, he defined it as repentance. Here's a quote from Isaac. It is a spiritual gift from God to perceive our sins. This life has been given to you for repentance. Do not waste it in vain pursuits. Seems like kind of a surprising way to sum up the whole of Christian existence. Repentance. Why? Why would Isaac define it that way? It's because he knew that if we haven't yet attained to the resurrection of God that's in Christ Jesus, the state of eternal bliss that we find described at like the end of Romans chapter 8, if we haven't got there yet, then at some level we're still grappling with the remaining presence of sin in our mortal bodies. And so our duty every day, as Paul says in Romans 8, is to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Another of my favorite pastors put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is our duty every single day. I emphasize this point because it's really, really easy to talk about repentance only when we talk about conversion. All of us in this room who are Christians know that there was a time when we were not and that there was a time when we felt that prick in our conscience when the Holy Spirit went to work and revealed our sin to us. And by the grace of God, we repented and we found life. 
But repentance isn't supposed to stop at conversion. I also emphasize the importance of repentance because right now, the church is very, very, very focused on defining sin. That's often because our definitions of sin are being contradicted both by other Christians and by the people outside of the world. So we, we find, find it necessary to, to re-examine our presuppositions, re-examine scripture, and simply to try and figure out again and to articulate at a new time for ourselves and for the world around us what sin is and what sin is not. But don't confuse correctly identifying sin with repentance. None of us will be saved when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ because we correctly identified what sin is. This is the problem that you find in a text like Romans 2. Paul's talking with someone who's boasting because they know what sin is when other folks don't. And you know what Paul's answer is? Well, when you know the wrong thing and you do it anyway, you're even worse off than if you didn't know it. So how, how do we go about repenting? What is it? The first thing I'd say about true repentance is that it's, it's a reflection of the image of God in us. Did you know God repents? He does. Repentance is, for example, what he does in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when he comes to Samuel and he says, I repent that I have made Saul king over Israel. So here's the distinction that we need to draw from a text like that. Repentance is an action that even God can do, but God doesn't sin. What repentance means then is to feel sorry for something, to feel negative emotion, regret at the negative consequences that we see in front of us that are caused by our actions, and then to do something different. When God repents, of making Saul king over Israel, he doesn't just leave Saul as king over Israel. He tears the kingdom away from him and gives it to David. Did God sin? No, but he did repent. All of us can repent of things that are not sin. I can repent of making dinner and over-seasoning the soup, and then I can go about trying to correct the flavor. That's repentance, too. But Ezekiel is properly concerned with repenting for sin, and let's face it, all of us need to do this every day, all the time. This is why the Lord's Prayer commands us continually to pray, forgive us. So what you can trust as a believer is that the work of the Holy Spirit in you is going about convicting you of sin every day. This is the work of the Spirit to lead us into all truth. And part of the work of the Spirit leading us in all truth is to convict the world of sin. There's those really telling words at the end of Ezekiel 18 where he commands the people, get a new heart and a new spirit. The spirit that Ezekiel means is the Holy Spirit that we all who are in Christ enjoy. So you can trust that when we're quiet and listen, that we will feel that prick in our conscience that convicts us of sin. And at this point, I'm tempted to just run through a big list of the seven deadly sins until we're all weeping on the floor in repentance. But for the sake of all of you and for the sake of time, I'll just mention a few that I've been repenting of personally. I've been repenting especially of sins of speech. You know, James says that the mark of perfection is that you control your tongue perfectly. So I've been repenting recently for gossip, that, that I gossip when I'm frustrated with the way things are. I've been repenting recently for grumbling when, 
when things don't go the way that I should, and so I start to run my mouth about how they could have been better if only. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the importance of repentance for some of us in this room who are not yet believers. If you find yourself cowering in fear, if you're worried about death, if you're worried, if you can look out and you can see the way that your sin is harming yourself, and you can see the way that sin is harming the people around you, and you think that this repentance in life thing sounds okay, then this is the thing to remember first of all, that when Ezekiel is urging Israel to repent, he's urging Israel to repent, not Babylon. God's people are in the midst of people who are not yet God's people. So the way to repentance in life is first to join God's people. And to join the new covenant, as Israel was a member of the old covenant, we need to submit to Christ who makes a way into a new and better covenant. And that will involve repentance for sin. If right now you feel yourself pricked in your heart and you think, what do I need to do to live? You need to submit to Christ. You need to understand that there is a gap between you and the people of God. And that no matter how hard you try, you cannot make it there on your own. On this side of the gap, where we all once stood and where some of us stand now, there's death. On the other side, there's life. And we can't jump from one side to the other. And so, in every covenant, God makes a way to deal with sin. In the old covenant, it was animal sacrifice. In the new covenant, it's the blood of his son, Jesus. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and when he dies on the cross, he dies once and for all as a perfect atoning sacrifice that can cover all sin. Doesn't matter what your sin is. God doesn't look at some sin and say, that's so bad, I would actually rather wipe that person out than see them repent. No, if you, if you find yourself one day standing before God unrepentant because you thought your sin was too bad, then you've misunderstood the character of God. God's heart says, repent and live. He wants to be gracious to you. I'm reminded of a story from another church uh, recently, another church in this city where there was a man who was actively on his way to commit a felony. And he heard a voice in the car saying, go to this church. And he went to that church and he met God so profoundly there that his life was radically changed. This happened in this city within the last month. Maybe you're, you're contemplating evil right now. Know that Jesus will accept you right as you are, bring you into the people of God, cover your sin, and that you can repent and live. If that's you today, at the end of this service, there's going to be a number of us who are standing down there waiting to pray with people. I'd encourage you just to come up and talk to us. As we go out today, I want to encourage all of us, whether we're believers, unbelievers, Christians, non-Christians, that we need to understand the fundamental character of God and we need to trust in his goodness and his willingness to forgive us. If, if for example, I think of my wife wrongly and I think of her as someone who is tired of me, who is bored with me, who is angry with me, who rolls her eyes when I come in the door in the afternoon or evening, I'm not going to be excited to go home and see her. But if I understand her for who she is and how she's been thinking of me during the day and how she's looking forward to spending time with me and with our kids and being a family together and getting to sit down and talk over dinner, then I'm eager to run home. 
Let all of us pursue renewed repentance because we know that God is eager to forgive us. Repent and live. That goes for all of us. And we can do it all by the power of the Spirit that He gives gladly. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you want to be gracious and compassionate to us. And so we all of us individually and collectively come to you now and we confess that we've sinned against heaven and against you. We haven't loved you as we should. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you forgive us. And we, we also pray that by the power of the Spirit, you keep us walking in eternal life. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.